Well, good morning, everybody. Who wasn't here last week? We're going to revise a little of what we did last week. We looked at two words which are sometimes used to sum up what God is like. I'll give you a clue. They start with G. Suggestions? Greatness, thank you. We sang earlier, how great thou art. And the other one starts with G, and that's goodness. goodness. Very good. The greatness and the goodness of God. They overlap to a great extent. God's greatness includes his omnipotence. He's all-powerful. But God doesn't use his power indiscriminately. God uses his power for good things. We celebrated the good things that were done at Calvary. So we're going to look at that psalm that was read earlier by Gordon. The words will come up on our screen. The psalm answers two questions. Question number one. Technology again. Uh, Gordon, 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 what's happening here? Uh, hang on, let's get this off. That's it. Question number one. What is God like? <laughs> oh, what's going on here? Question number one, what is God like? Question number two, how should we respond to him? What is God like? He's great. For example, great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. God is also good. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. We looked last week at verses such as verse 3, great is the Lord. Verse 4 talks of his mighty acts. Verse 5 of his splendor and majesty, his wonderful works, his awesome works. That's awesome, isn't it? You went to Niagara Falls Terry, didn't you? Was that awesome? But today our focus is on the goodness of God. And the second half of the psalm tells us a lot about that topic. For example, verse 7, They will celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful slow to anger and rich in love. The first of the good things about God is that he's righteous. 
That's good news and it's bad news for this nation and for the world. Martin Luther studied the book of Romans and he kept coming across this phrase, the righteousness of God, and he didn't like it. Because every time he read about the righteousness of God, he was reminded of the unrighteousness of Martin Luther. And he knew that a righteous God must punish unrighteous Martin Luther's. So it wasn't good news. And it isn't good news. You'll notice there that it says that God is slow to anger. But he does get angry. He does get angry. The Bible uses the word wrath. Some people don't like the notion of God getting angry because the God they remember is in the childhood prayer, gentle Jesus, meek and mild and so on. And anger doesn't sound like meekness and mildness. Friends, God is angry with the wicked every day, says the psalm. And Romans 1 verse 18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. What is God's anger? Is it a fit of temper? Is it him losing his cool? No. It's been described as the settled reaction of his righteousness against our unrighteousness. It's a settled thing. It's part of his nature to react strongly against unrighteousness. And if we're Christians today, we should share some of that anger. If you can see a movie about the Holocaust and not get angry, I wonder whether you have a sense of righteousness at all. I'm angry at a decision made by the Supreme Court in the United States where five judges have decided that every state in the United States must approve gay marriage. God is righteous and it is he who decides the standards for this world. And I said this last week and I'll say it again because it is of great concern to me. It's not the parliament that decides what is right for us. It's not somebody in the High Court of Australia who decides. It is not the popular vote of the people of Australia that decides the direction that we should go morally and ethically. It is the righteous God of this universe. And I think God is very angry today with what's happened in the United States. And we're going down the same track. And I fear, particularly for the children who will be adopted into those gay marriages and who statistically are in danger of being more unemployed, perhaps more involved in drugs and in bad relationships and so on. And what will we do? Will we reverse the law? No, because it's not God who decides, it's we who decide. And we've decided. What we'll do is we'll spend an extra $50 billion creating counselling programs and pick up uh, mechanisms for all of those who are going to suffer on account of this. God is a righteous God.
His righteousness was never more demonstrated than at the cross which we have celebrated this morning. Why was Jesus on the cross there? I've asked students over the years, who needed Jesus to die? And people say, God, uh, we did, sinners did, the world did, everybody did. And often they'll leave out God. God needed Jesus to die. And Romans 3 verses 25 and 6 tells us why God needed Jesus to die. Jesus, says Romans, was set forth as a propitiation through faith in his blood. And propitiation is all about turning away the wrath of God. He was set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. Listen, that he might declare God's righteousness with respect to God having forgiven people in the past like David who committed adultery and murder. God forgave him. David confessed his sin in Psalm 51. Blot out my transgressions. And God did. On what basis did God do it? What right did a righteous God have to let David off the hook when a righteous God should punish sin? The same basis upon which God has forgiven your sins. There's not one sin in this whole universe that has been or ever will be forgiven other than on the grounds of the Son of God taking all of those sins upon himself and dying the death that we deserve to die. Some of you will remember an old song in the Believer's Hymn Book, a verse of which went like this. Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or take away one stain. But Christ, the heavenly lamb, takes all our guilt away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. Why was Jesus on the cross? One reason is to declare God's righteousness with respect to his having forgiven people in the past. But if we didn't get the point, he says in the next verse, it was to declare his righteousness with respect to God's justifying sinners in the present time. All around the world. I suspect hundreds, thousands of people this very day will come to Christ and have their sins forgiven. How can a righteous God do that instead of punishing them? Because Jesus died for them. God's righteousness is, not, is upheld through the death of Christ. But so is God's love. Bill quoted in his prayer, Romans 5 verse 8, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The goodness of God. He's righteous. He's loving. But look at these other words. Gracious and merciful. Grace is a beautiful word. Probably the most well-known hymn, even by unbelievers, is Amazing Grace. Isn't that so? 
Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Saw President Obama singing at some funeral the other day. Did you see that on TV? I don't know if he really knows what grace is about. Let's pray that he will if he doesn't. The man who wrote that hymn, of course, was John Newton. He knew what grace was all about. He was a wretch of a man. Not only a slave trader, but as one biography of him is titled, A Servant of Slaves. He was a slave of slaves. But God made him a preacher of the gospel and a writer of great hymns. And I'm going to read the words of one of his hymns. I couldn't find it in your hymn book, which is a pity, because according to the biographical note I have of this hymn, it's one of the best autobiographical hymns written. Earlier we sang the song, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. This hymn is also about surveying the cross and it's really the testimony of John Newton. Listen hard, please. It's one of the most wonderful hymns and it's a great pity that it's gone out of fashion. And those hymn books where I have seen it seem to start at verse 2 and verse 1 is left out. So listen to John Newton as he says this. In evil long I took delight unawed by shame or fear, till a new object struck my sight and stopped my wild career. I saw one hanging on a tree in agony and blood, who fixed his languid eyes on me as near his cross I stood. Sure, never to my latest breath can I forget that look, it seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. My conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw my sins his blood had spilt and helped to nail him there. Alas, I knew not what I did, but now my tears are vain. Where shall my trembling soul be hid? For I, the Lord, have slain. A second look he gave which said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for thy ransom paid. I die that thou mayest live. Thus while his death my sin displays in all its blackest hue, such is the mystery of grace. It seals my pardon too. With pleasing grief and mournful joy, my spirit now is filled that I should such a life destroy, yet live by him I killed. They are wonderful words, friends. And if you didn't really grasp the wonder of them, then look them up on the internet. Get a hold of that song and go through it. I love these words. Pleasing grief. Funny combination of words. Mournful joy. Another funny combination of words. Pleasing because the death of Christ seals our pardon. It's the basis of grace. 
We've lost our connection here. What's going on? Come back. He knows everything, this guy. <laughs> there are two other words. There's another word there. Mercy. Grace and mercy, they're not the same. Somebody put it this way. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. And grace is getting what you don't deserve. What do we deserve? Hell. Righteous God has got every right to punish us. But we don't get it because of Jesus. That's mercy. But we do get such a lot. Forgiveness, hope, everlasting life. Mercy and grace. They're wonderful words. And we need them all the time. Never think that you only need grace at the moment of conversion. What does he say in that hymn? Tis grace has kept me till this hour. And grace will lead me home. It's grace all along the way. And that's why in Hebrews we're told, let us come boldly under the throne of grace that we may receive mercy. Aha. Mercy. And find grace to help us in our time of need. Now, the writer is addressing Christians. And he's saying, now, come to this throne of grace. And the first thing to ask for is mercy. And the second thing to ask for is grace. We ask for mercy for what we have done. And we ask for grace so we won't do it again. I'm glad that we had the hymn, Daryl, earlier, Just As I Am. Many years ago, sitting in the Tawong Brethren Assembly, somebody gave that out. And at the time, I probably thought, that's an unusual hymn to give out at a worship service. That's a gospel hymn. Billy Graham used it after all of his sermons, inviting people, just as they are, to come. But I found it a blessing. That hymn is not just for people who are coming to Christ for the first time. That's our only basis for coming at any time. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. And that's why I believe Hebrews 4.16 says, let us come boldly. You don't just breathe into the presence of God. No. On the one hand, we're conscious of the righteousness of God and of our own unrighteousness. And naturally, we would not fear. We would fear to go into the presence of God. But we can come boldly because Christ took our sin. But we don't have to be perfect before we come. It's only imperfect, weak people who need mercy. Isn't that true? What's the first thing you ask for when you go to the throne of grace? Mercy. And then grace. Well, there's so much in those two verses that we must hurry on. This psalm is filled with the goodness of God. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all he has made. 
As we go through these verses, you will see the word all cropping up in almost every verse. There's a hymn which has this phrase, there's a wideness in God's mercy. I want us to get hold of this. God loves everybody. For God so loved the the world. God loves Muslims. God loves sparrows. He's concerned at it when everyone, anyone drops. God loves the whole of his creation. Here's the goodness of God. The Lord is faithful to all his promises, loving toward all he has made. The Bible's full of promises. Some of them are conditional, have to fulfill the conditions. But it's great when you've got a promise and you know that God is faithful in keeping his promises when you come to God in prayer. You'll know George Mueller as the man who looked after orphans, 2,000 at one time. No fates to raise money for the orphans, prayer for the orphans. It was his practice when praying to search the scriptures to find something there which would encourage his faith. And he came across this lovely phrase about God, that he is the father of the fatherless. Oh, that would catch the attention of a man like George Mueller. It meant that when he went to prayer for the orphans and there was no food in the pantry for breakfast tomorrow, he could say, Lord... You have said that you are the father of the fatherless and so I'm trusting you to look after your children who are here in this orphanage and his faith would be strengthened to expect an answer and it came because God is faithful to all his promises. I think of Isaac. Isaac met his wife on the day of their marriage. Doesn't happen too often, does it? I go to a particular barber near me. I used to go to another one in the same room, but she was noisy and somebody would walk in the door and she'd shout across the whole room and I preferred a quiet conversation. So I go with Jodie and Jodie has quiet chats. And I said, well, my daughter's getting married at Easter time. And I said, uh, she's 30-odd, and this is her first real boyfriend. And Lindsay Crookshank had her on his list of people who are older and not married. Oh, what a wonderful wedding. Terry, you were there. A wonderful wedding. But I spoke with Jodie about this, and she was a bit surprised that she hadn't had any real boyfriends before because Jody's philosophy is this that you've got to sleep around a bit to know if you're going to be be compatible my other daughter she was uh, I was at an airport waiting for a plane and I was browsing in a bookshop and I found this book by Denton what's his name Uh, Andrew. Andrew Denton he had this program Enough Rope. Anybody remember Enough Rope? 
I flipped through it and here's a full page picture of my daughter, the other daughter. And she had had an interview with Andrew Denton as the girl who'd never been kissed. And she responded, I think, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. She later got a little bit of an expert in Cosmopolitan magazine, which is a different kind of magazine, but again, a girl who had values because she wanted to give her husband the package with a ribbon untied. And any husband would be glad to get a present like that without having to see if they were incompatible. Amen? I've lost track of where I was going. What was I talking about? (laughs) Okay, all right, don't rub it in. Look at this. All the blues are about the goodness of God. He upholds all those who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. Some of you have come to church here and you may be on the point of falling. There's pressures upon you that would make you fall. You may already have fallen. Or you've come with a heaviness of spirit. Or you've sung joyfully and you've looked smilingly at us, but inside it's different. I once saw a set of statistics about church attendance and it went something like this. The numbers aren't accurate. I'll give you an idea. In the average group of 100 people in church, perhaps 2 or 3% of people could be struggling with their sexual identity. Perhaps 10, 20% of the marriages might be really struggling to survive. And so on it went. And when people come to church, they want to be lifted up if they're bowed down. One writer says when people go to a hospital, they don't want to know the history of the hospital. They don't want to know the Greek word for scalpel. What do they want? Healing. Healing. I watched a program on television at 5.30 this morning and the speaker made a very powerful plea that we who are Christians would be like Jesus. He was a healer. And he asked this question of us. When we spent time with Peter, people, do they feel wounded or healed? It's a good question. There's a lovely song that Michael Crawford sings. My friend Terry over here, who's come to live on the South Sunshine Coast and has kindly driven me to this service this morning, he once lent me a CD of Michael Crawford. And one of the songs is, Somebody's Hurting, Not Too Far From Here. Anybody ever heard that song? Oh, it's powerful. 
not too far from here. They may be in the same bedroom, the hurting person, the same house, the same school, the same class at university, the same street, somebody not too far from here is hurting, weeping, burdened. And we as Christians can either add to their burden or we can heal them. There's a great challenge there for us. But this speaker on TV, he said, you can't do it in a hurry. It takes time. Sometimes we're rushing so much through life that we pass the hurting people like the priest and the Levite who passed the man on the side of the road. You see, the whole point of these attributes of God is not so that we can sit back, fold our arms, oh, that's what God is like, oh, that one and that one. What is God's object? Well, you have it in Corinthians. We all, gazing with open face at the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image. Do you remember that? What is the object for every Christian? That we should be conformed to his image. How were we created? In the image of God. In other words, you remember I struggled with that word last week. Some theologians have divided the attributes of God into the communicable and the incommunicable attributes. Well, love is one of the communicable attributes. We will never love as God is love, but we should be aiming for that. A.H. Strong was a great theologian. He said this, if the doctrine of sinless perfection is a heresy, contentment with sinful imperfection is a greater heresy. And he quotes a German proverb. He says, if it is ordained that trees shall not grow until they reach the sky, it is nevertheless ordained that they shall grow towards the sky. Are we growing towards these attributes of God? We'll never reach them, friends. But that should be our goal, to be gracious, merciful, loving, righteous, slow to anger. Isn't that what James 1.22 says? Be quick to listen slow to speak and slow to get angry. That's what God is like. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. Not just people. Willy wagtails. They look to God for food. If you don't believe me, you will in a minute. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. Every living thing. There's a wonderful psalm about this. You needn't turn to it, but I'll read you a bit of it. Psalm 104. God makes springs pour water into the ravines. It flows between the mountains. They give water 
to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the air nest by the waters. They sing among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for man to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread that sustains his heart. The trees of the Lord are well watered, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. There the birds make their nests. The stork has its home in the pine trees. The high mountains belong to the wild goats. The crags are refuge for the conies. That's wonderful stuff. That is wonderful stuff. That's written by someone who knew that God is not a, a way out there, a God who doesn't care, that he's nearer than breathing, closer than hands and feet. We are privileged people. We have a God who sends us rain, who gives us beautiful food. When you go into the supermarket, you know, there's 10 different kinds of lettuces from China all over the world, 15 kinds of radishes. We are so spoiled. But that's what God has done. He's lavished his love upon us. It says here, you open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. Now, God doesn't have hands. This is a manner of speaking. There's a technical term that theologians use. This is called an anthropomorphism. The anthropit is the word for man, and the other bit is form. So sometimes the Bible speaks as if God has got things that belong to the human body, but they're merely ascribed to God to help us to understand something about him. You know, we read earlier, his greatness nobody can fathom. To help us understand, sometimes it will use language like this. He opens his hand, guess what I've got for you today? There. The eyes of the Lord. He doesn't have eyes. But do you know what it means when it says the eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good. He doesn't have ears, but you know what he means when he says, the Lord's ear is not heavy that it cannot hear. He doesn't have arms, but underneath and round about are the everlasting arms. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and loving toward all he has made. I would say that if you wanted two words to sum up the God, the goodness of God, it's those two. It's those two. His righteousness affects his justice, his reaction to human behaviour, and grace and mercy and provision for our needs, they're all part of his love for us. And they're great too. Don't leave the greatness of God behind, friends. Don't compartmentalise God. God is a very unified being. Everything he does is him, not just a bit of him. I love this one. The Lord is near to all who called him. 
to all who call on him in truth. Near. Theologians have made a distinction between two aspects of God, and I want you to get hold of these big words because they're important. And if we don't get the balance right, we'll become heretics. One is the transcendence of God. And his greatness tends to make us think more of his transcendence. Last week we saw that he's on the throne. He's high and lifted up. He's other. But on the other hand, he's near. And that's what the immanence of God is all about. I-double-M-A-N, not I. A-N-E-N-C-E. God is nearer. He's near. He doesn't always seem near, though. I once saw a caption which read, God is far away. God seems far away. But who moved? He's only a, a call away. And that idea of calling comes up again. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches all who love him. Cry, call. There's almost a sense of emergency there. The shortest prayer really in Scripture is, help, help me. You can become a Christian with just a short prayer like that. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, not just words, but crying from a sense of desperation that as sinners we face the judgment of God unless he bestows his mercy and grace upon us. Help. Help implies that we can't handle it. But there's somebody who can. And we want him to step in. And that's what's promised here. All who call on him. He's near. He's there. Just like that. Sometimes you'll be so bowed down that you don't know what to pray. And the Bible knows that that's likely to be the case because in Romans chapter 8 and verse 26 we read this. The Spirit helps us in our weakness because we don't know what to pray for. So the Spirit takes over and he prays for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And God, who knows what the Holy Spirit is praying, answers because the Spirit is praying according to the will of God. Isn't that a wonderful promise? It's a neglected promise. I've started to make use of it. In fact, I even pray, you mightn't like what I do, but I say, Holy Spirit, pray for me. Because that's one of his jobs. He's an intercessor. And when you don't know what to pray for yourself, then ask him to pray for you because every prayer that he's ever prayed is always in the will of God and it's only prayers that are in the will of God that get answered anyway. Maybe you've experienced this. Have you ever been down by your bed so overwrought with some pressure upon you that 
You either wept or you groaned. It may be in that moment prayer was being uttered as it's never been uttered before. That the Holy Spirit had taken over when you and your weakness did not know what to pray for. Well, I've got to hurry. Let's move on. How should we respond? Just three words. We should praise. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. They will celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. I want to stop just there for a minute. I was brought up in the Brethren Assemblies. My mother was converted at the age of 47. She had been a good Presbyterian woman, but never been converted. And she heard an evangelist, I think his name was Calvin Thomas, Welshman probably. She was born again, never looked back. She died at the age of 87. For 40 years, she was steadfast. She wasn't happy in the church she'd been in before her conversion and we started to go to the Tawong Gospel Hall. And I'm grateful for that because I learnt the Bible on the one hand and I got the opportunity to preach on the other hand. Those two things have stood me in very good stead. But I've got some painful memories as well. Here's one of the painful memories that I have and I say it in relation to what we've just said about praise. Every day will I praise him. I have sat, not just there, I don't want to just bag them, but I have sat in hundreds of so-called worship meetings when it was almost as if the pauses when nobody had anything to say were longer than the periods when people did have something to say. And some of you will know what I'm talking about. If I'm exaggerating, it's to make this point. I believe it's an indictment upon us when God has been so good to us that we can't even say thank you to him. And I want to say to you young people here, when somebody up here says it's now open for you to participate and to thank the Lord, then thank the Lord. You owe it to him. He's worthy of it. Or you say, but I can't put my prayer together so that it's impressive. Who are you talking to? You're talking to the Lord. I knew a man recently converted in another church I went to and he got up one Sunday morning and he said, it's Graham here, Lord. Oh, I found that refreshing. Oh. It was as if Graham was on one end of the line talking to God on the other end of the line. Was it a, an impressive prayer such as I've experienced where people can take a theme and weave it through a 20-minute prayer? <laughs> Some of those 20-minute prayers were the same as previous 20-minute prayers. No, God wants reality from our hearts. And we have the opportunity to worship here. And God is looking for people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. I got into... Oh, I know. Can you, you give me just a few more minutes? I was leading a service at an assembly I used to go to. It was a big auditorium. Some of you know what I'm talking about. And we arranged for four 
allows uh, microphones to be placed over the congregation. And uh, I simply said, here's an opportunity for us to praise the Lord. Just go to a microphone near you and thank the Lord. Worship him. And they started to roll up. And one after another, praise the Lord. For me, it was one of the most joyful, liberating worship experiences in all my years of sitting in those silences. Oh, but not everybody liked it. Oh, some women wanted to thank the Lord for saving their souls. And there was somebody out there who knew that somebody in the congregation was charismatic and was dead scared that they were going to break out in tongues over the microphone. <laughs> you can't worship when you have that attitude, friend. You cannot worship when you're thinking that. No. But as far as I was concerned, people were doing what God is wanting people to do, to give him the glory that he deserves. And that's what these attributes are about. It's not so that we can say, oh, I know the attributes of God. No. We're to become like those attributes and most of all, we are to worship him for who he is. And you can't worship God if you don't know what he's like. The second response is this, and we saw this last week. I will meditate on your wonderful works. Takes time. Meditate. Don't rush. Think. Chew it over. I've been thinking about trees this week. Oh, what beautiful furniture is made out of the timber in, from a cedar tree. What lovely birds nest in the tree. What lovely fruit is eaten from the tree. The shade of a tree on a hot day. It's better than a tent. Have you ever noticed that? The shade from a tree is much better than any structure that we can put up. The third thing we should do, proclaim. One generation will commend your works to another. They will tell. They will tell of the power of your awesome works and I will proclaim your great deeds. They will tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might so that all men may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendour of your kingdom. We have an obligation to worship this way and to proclaim this way. That's our role. Well, we're going to worship him now. The psalm begins, I will exalt you, I will praise your name. Verse 2, I will pray, every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. And how does it end? My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. We're going to sing two short songs. Here's the first one. It's a Sunday school song, well known, but it's about the goodness of God. And then we're going to sing another one about the goodness of God and our technocrat here will help us to move the slide. So let us sit for the first one and stand for the second one. Is that all right? Are you playing or not? Uh, this is God is so good. That's the second one, that one. I hope you remember this song.